It's Monday, the 25th of November, and this is the Monocle Minute. Today, as the US president faces impeachment over his dealings with Ukraine, how has Donald Trump's view of the world been impacted by foreign leaders? From Vladimir Putin of Russia to Hungary's Viktor Orban, we'll ask the author and journalist Adam Labour. Trump likes Orban, I think, on a personal level. The ambassador in Budapest is David Kornstein, who's a New York businessman from the jewellery business, and he is, I think, been a key figure in facilitating that relationship. Plus, Airbnb bites as Canada cracks down on short-term holiday rentals. K-pop superstars BTS are ordered to complete military service. And Monocle's Andrew Muller salutes a favourite of the skies and explains why certain aircraft are better at reminding us of the wonders of air travel. I'm Ben Rylan in London. The Monocle Minute starts now. In May of this year, Donald Trump sat down for a meeting with the Hungarian president, Viktor Orban. Before the meeting had even begun, it had already ignited a furious dispute in the White House. According to the New York Times, those against the visit from Viktor Orban included John Bolton, who was then the president's national security advisor, and Fiona Hill, then the National Security Council's senior director for Eurasian and Russian affairs. But Trump pressed ahead with the meeting anyway and, as a result, was exposed to another heavily critical view of Ukraine, one that chimed with what he'd already heard from discussions with Vladimir Putin and his own personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. So, now with impeachment proceedings well underway, how much do we actually know about Donald Trump's dealings with the governments of Eastern Europe? Adam Labour is a journalist and author and was formerly Monocle's correspondent in Budapest. I would say there's a kind of ideological sympathy between them. Trump likes Orban, I think, on a personal level. The ambassador in Budapest is David Kornstein, who's a New York businessman from the jewellery business. And he is, I think, been a key figure in facilitating that relationship, for sure. If you look at what's happened with Central European University, the university that was founded and backed by George Soros, the philanthropist, part of that's left and gone to Vienna. And that was really never really a hot-button issue for Kornstein. He's always rather taken Viktor Orban's side. He said Donald Trump would love to have the situation Viktor Orban has in Hungary, where basically he's won three elections in a row with a very fractured opposition and not much prospect of, of that changing for the moment. So I think there's there's definitely a sort of one hard-talking, tough-dealing, very directional political leader with another one. There's a sort of sympathy there. But beyond that, there's a backstory there, which is back to 1920. What happened in 1920 was that the Treaty of Trianon, two-thirds of Hungarian territory was taken away. That means that there's very substantial Hungarian minorities in all the neighbouring countries, one of which is Ukraine. There's about 200,000 ethnic Hungarians, people ethnically Hungarian, living in Ukraine. And Viktor Orban's government has been very protective of them and keeps saying that the Ukrainian government in Kiev is not looking after them properly and there's issues about language laws and schooling and and violent attacks and harassment and things like that. So that's the leverage that Orban is using and also Mr Orban is quite close to Russia. And Hungarians say, well, why wouldn't we be? He's right there next door to us. You know, we have to have a relationship with them. So there's complex things going on. And as usual, with anything to do with Eastern Europe, it goes back decades and decades. It's beyond what you see in today's headlines. 
commercial operators on services like Airbnb and VRBO are packing their bags in Toronto after a planning appeal tribunal upheld City Hall's decision to place restrictions on short-term rentals. Monocle's Nick Moniz has the story. Nick, thanks for being here. What is the plan here? The Toronto City Council introduced some legislation two years ago, and it's been a long, drawn-out process. Basically, what they want to do is they want to restrict Airbnbs and other sort of home-sharing services to just a homeowner's primary residence and restrict that use for 180 days each year. So basically, they're trying to clamp down on commercial operators operating numerous different properties throughout the city as short-term accommodation. And it's like I said, it's been a two-year process and it's been contested by numerous individuals and, and, and groups who aren't happy with the regulation because it's... I guess their primary means of making an income. But basically it's gone to the local planning appeal tribunal in Ontario and they have upheld it as good planning legislation. It's a really tricky issue, isn't it? Because on one hand, you do have these cases in various pockets of the world where Airbnb has come along and rather than give the hotel industry just a bit of a shake-up, it has led to some unintended consequences. You've got buildings that have been turned into basically glorified Airbnb hotels, haven't you? And that's that's not so good for the people who are actually living in the area, contributing to the local economy day after day. And then all of a sudden, they've got a rotating, revolving door of neighbours and they never know who's coming in and out of, of their building. You can understand the concern there. On the other hand, one could argue that the hotel industry was in some parts in need of a bit of a shake-up. What's your take on this particular measure, though? Because it's very difficult to come up with a one-size-fits-all solution. Will this have the intended benefit? It's an interesting approach. I think it is trying to be quite balanced. It's, it's not wanting to stop people and prevent Airbnbs from, from popping up. That's not their intention. They still want people to be able to use it to generate a little bit of income on the side and, and provide homestay options for people looking for that sort of experience in a city. But at the same time, it, it wants to stop the emergence of what they're calling ghost hotels, like, like you described, where basically whole buildings are, are just being leased out for short-term stays. And their intention, I guess their plan here is to try and help ease the housing shortage in Toronto. So they've got a 1.1% vacancy rate in the city and a healthy city has about 3%. From my perspective, I don't think this is necessarily going to be that you know magic bullet that's going to fix this problem. I, th- I think obviously that there's a lot more that goes into a housing crisis than just you know clamping down on Airbnb. But what they're hoping for is that the 5,000 homes that are now currently serving as permanent Airbnbs will be returned to the long-term rental market. And, and what that means is that there's now 5,000 more homes for people in Toronto to live in rather than just to have tourists staying there. Well, there's no place like home. Nick Manise, thanks very much. Now to Seoul, where one of the nation's favourite K-pop groups may be forced to take some time out. BTS might be one of the most successful pop supergroups in music history, but that means nothing in the face of civic duty. The South Korean government has announced that, in spite of its considerable achievements, the group's members are not exempt from military service, which is a mandatory requirement for all able-bodied males under the age of 28. BTS holds the record for the most viewed music video in 24 hours on YouTube and boasts album sales in excess of 11 million. Save me, they might well think, 
but they shouldn't worry. It did no harm for Elvis, whose drafting coincided with the peak of his success. He stayed relevant with drip-fed releases of his back catalogue. As long as BTS has something in the archives, they should be fine. Finally today, Monocle's Andrew Muller sings the praises of the Embraer 190 aircraft, an everyday workhorse that reminds passengers of the wonders of air travel, whilst also providing a dash of Brazilian panache. Airlines labour to make air travel seem a mundane endeavour. It's not hard to see why. Persuading us as a species to be hurtled through the skies at a thousand kilometres an hour was always going to require reassurance. But it means that the default attitude to the marvel of air travel is one of irritability and complacency. I am one of those irritable and complacent air passengers. I do not look forward to getting on, and I look forward very much to getting off. Until very recently, regarding any make or model of commercial passenger plane with affection would have struck me as preposterous. What changed was a run of flights between European hubs, London City, Dublin, Frankfurt, Zurich, among others, aboard Brazilian-built Embraer 190s. The 190 is a smallish, single-aisle airliner seating about 100 passengers. It's popular with airlines operating short hops in Europe and the Americas. To date, 566 190s and 172 of its sister 195 have been delivered. And much to my surprise, I've discovered that I enjoy them. It's partly, and call me superficial, down to appearances. The 190 is an elegant presence on the apron. This is especially noticeable at airports such as London City, where passengers board by walking across the tarmac, where most Boeings and Airbuses are very much aircraft, with all the ponderous utilitarian drabness the term suggests, the Svelte 190 is emphatically a jet. Inside, the 190 makes your trip seem as much adventure as commute. There are usually just two seats either side of the aisle. At the window, the curvature of the fuselage is distinct enough that you can't be fooled into thinking yourself aboard some kind of airborne tram. It feels like a leather helmet, goggles and raffish scarf would not be inappropriate. There's also something to be said for a lack of seatback screens. Implicit encouragement to enjoy the view and the flight for its own own sake. It's a great advertisement for flying, and for Brazil as well, and while it's risky to read too much of a national character into an item of machinery, if ever an aeroplane deserved blue shorts and a gold shirt with green collar, the 190 does. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And that's all in today's program. You can read and subscribe to our daily email bulletin at our website, monocle.com. I'm Ben Ryland. The Monocle Minute returns on Tuesday. Tuesday.